People worry about, I couldn't tell somebody else about my stress because I don't want to burden them. They have a lot going on. They're busy with work. They're busy with life, busy with the kids. And if I tell them, then I've just added more stress to them. But often, because of this fast pace of life, those other people could be going through the exact same stresses. Mm. And they don't see as a burden. And they're worrying about, Paul doesn't seem to be doing great. I wonder, is he all right? And it's a burden that we don't tell them. Or they could feel a sense of connection of, yeah, look, I feel the same way too. Welcome to the HSE Talking Health and Wellbeing podcast. My name is Noreen Turley and I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Smith, who is Senior Clinical Psychologist with Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services. Mark specialises in working with teenagers with mental health difficulties, including anxiety, depression, self-harm and trauma. So Mark, in the HSE Health and Wellbeing Department, we lead on the Stronger Together Mental Health Promotion Plan, which is all part of sharing the vision and connecting for life. And one of the actions in that plan is to embed mental health promotion messaging in our campaigns to help improve mental health literacy. And when I was looking over this, I thought to myself, well, what is mental health literacy? I think it's a broad term that takes in lots of different areas. But I think on, on a very basic level, it's about understanding. It's about having those words to be able to describe what we're doing, you know, how we're feeling, the impact of life and how it affects us. I think one of the, the hard things for people sometimes is to say, look, how are you doing? And we have a, an unfortunate tendency in Ireland to restrict everything down to grant or fine. And it's it's about giving people a wider range of vocabulary to be able to describe the range of experiences that we have. Because I think in, in my work with people, sometimes when if you ask them how they're doing and they respond with don't know, sometimes that's interpreted as, oh, they're they're reluctant to engage or they don't want to say or or something negative. But actually, I think we need to take that answer at face value. Sometimes yeah. people just don't know how they feel. And it's important to be able to say, well, look, what it sounds like based on what you're telling me is it might be, this is what we might be feeling, or this is what it might be understood as. And, and to take that as, as a beginning point is that at least they, they have a sense of connection of, okay, so what I'm feeling makes sense. I'm not the only one. And I yeah. think that's an important part of literacy is that there's an education piece that each of our individual experiences, while they are individual, they're also something that lots of people experience. And I think one of the things that really people can struggle with their mental health is a sense of isolation and loneliness. Whereas if we know that I'm not the only one that feels like this and we educate people about that, then then we're doing good work. Yeah. So it's giving people the words to be able to communicate how they're feeling. To communicate to others, but also to self-label. Yeah. Because when we feel emotions, they can be very complex. And it's rare that you're going to have a emotion that just sits there on its own. It's usually interspersed with lots of different emotions. So it can change. So I might know how it might feel right now, but in 30 seconds, depending on what I'm thinking or if something else happens, it could be changed with something else. So before we can communicate to somebody else how we're feeling, we first have to get an idea of well, how do I feel myself? Yeah. And we shouldn't take it for granted that people will have that knowledge. So it's important that we we educate everybody so that that they know or at least do their best to know how they yeah. might be feeling, which then gives them the opportunity to be able to communicate that to somebody else. Okay. So this campaign that we're discussing today, we talk about anxiety, stress, sleep and low mood. And the language in that, it would hope that that would help people describe and recognize how they feel at a moment in time to identify if they need any assistance. Mm. And so if we look at anxiety first, how would you describe anxiety? 
So I think one of the, the most important things to first say about anxiety is it's a normal emotion like everything else. It's as normal as, as happiness, as excitement, as frustration. And I think part of that literacy piece is that we have to be careful that we don't mislabel as anxiety as something that we shouldn't experience or that we want to get rid of or we want to stop because we all feel anxiety. And sometimes one of the conversations that I have to have with people is that to reframe the lens in which we look at anxiety through. So with someone who's really struggling with it, sometimes I say, well, look, do you know what? Anxiety can be really helpful or anxiety can actually be fun. And for many different reasons, they, they would look at me like I've got 10 heads, like what's he on about? Because this is something that literally dominates my life. So with, with maybe younger people, I may say to them, but look, have you been to Tato now, Emerald Park? Mm. And did you do Cucullin? I said, yeah. And like, what was it like when you were queuing to get ready to go up the first time? I said, oh, I was, my heart was pounding. I thought you know, I was going to die. I was going to vomit. My stomach mm. was in knots. My muscles were all tense. So wow. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and what happened? Well, I got off and it was brilliant. And I just wanted to do it again. I said, okay, hang on. So your heart pounding, your mouth being dry, muscles being tense. That reminds me of a conversation we had five minutes ago about, you know, public speaking or going mm. into school. Is that not exactly the same physiological symptoms, but that one was fun. Like, oh, oh yeah. Or, yeah. you know, if you're, if you're walking on the street alone late at night and you hear a noise behind you and you look around and there's a unpleasant looking individual kind of coming towards you with a strong likelihood they want to take your phone. Your heart starts to pound, your muscles tense up and you get ready and you run like hell to get out of there. So anxiety protected mm. you. So again, what we want to see is that as a general emotion, it's actually, it can be helpful. Certainly in performance-based areas, you need a moderate level of anxiety in order to, to do well because it focuses you on like, what are my challenges? What do I need to plan? What am I going to do? But there is a reality for a significant amount of people that anxiety, when it gets to really unbearable levels, gets in the way of them being able to feel confident in doing everyday things then yeah. we need to pay attention to it. And when we talk about anxiety, and now we hear the word social anxiety a lot, and are we as healthcare professionals and as parents, are we equipping children to be able to deal with that anxiety and recognise that it's something that it is okay to have? It's a great question. I think there isn't enough recognition of it. Anxiety in itself is very internalised. So you've got internal bodily sensations like the heart beating in the stomach, mm. churning around the place, but also you're bombarded by thoughts. Most of them starting with two small words, but that have a profound effect on people. What if? So when we start talking with people about anxiety and I tell them, like, what, what, what if thoughts do you have? Like, how, how do you know that? How do you know they're, mm. they're what ifs? Like, that's what we all experience. So I think that that social anxiety piece, it, it peaks in kind of mid-adolescence is usually where the, the strongest onset is going to be. But I have noticed it's, it's coming younger down as, mm. you know, as far as kind of kids age 12 and 13. And with social anxiety, the, the greatest fear is that I'm going to embarrass myself, that people will, will think badly of me. And if we have low self-esteem, if we don't have great confidence in ourselves, our ability to be confident in coming across well to others is limited. So we're, we're anxious about it. And I think one thing that we're not good at doing is validating people when they're anxious to say, yeah, that makes sense that you're worried about that. And particularly being a teenager is extremely hard. So the, the greatest challenge of being a teenager is how do I figure out how to fit in, be accepted and be liked? And sometimes they can have unrealistic expectations that mm. like, everybody has to like me. So there is a reality that, you know, worrying about being good enough is a valid worry for a teenager. But we do, unfortunately, use reassurance or try to use reassurance too much when people are anxious. Say, it'll be grand, you'll enjoy yourself, loads okay. of people will talk to you. But of course, that's not reality. 
So we do have to get better at recognizing that if that gets in the way. So social anxiety in itself can can really get a hold of someone to the point where it stops them engaging. You know, they stop going to the GAA, they stop going to music, they stop going to school, they stop leaving the house. Yeah. Because at its core, social anxiety is a fear of people, a fear of judgment, a fear of what will people think of me. So when it gets to very extreme levels, the person just tries to avoid people because that that idea that they might embarrass themselves and, and make a fool of themselves in front of others mm. gets so anxiety provoking. The only way that they can think to cope with that is to try and avoid. So when it would come to that stage that if you had a child or that st- was stopped going to the GA or going to their music lesson, how do you differentiate between, oh, it's they're just not feeling great today or is it would it be like an ongoing anxiety or is it? Yeah, when, when there's a repeated pattern and I think that help seeking the most important most effective form of help for a child who's experiencing anxiety is their parent okay they know their children they know them well and often when a parent would come to me looking for help for their child or anxiety i end up telling them what they already know yeah they just need me to reinforce that that they were right that they knew what to do yeah and i think parents own anxiety often gets in the way of them effectively helping their children because we do live in an age where we have higher expectations of all of us in terms of what we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to look, you know, teenagers, mm. but how parents are supposed to be. And I think unrealistic standards are being communicated to parents about what they should be to be good enough. Mm. And I often reference back to when parents, when, when they have the babies first and the baby cries and they look at it, especially your first child. I have three of my own and you go, I have no idea what's wrong. This could be wind, there could be poo coming, they could be tired, they could have a pain. And they can't tell me what it is. And do you know what? I'm going to guess. I'm going to figure out as best I can to what will work for this baby to try and soothe them, to help them through it. And if that doesn't work, I'll try something else. Yeah. And they do it. And they do a good enough job. Mm. But unfortunately, when they get preteens and teens and they're still distressed, parents suddenly lose confidence in their own ability to know their kids, even Mm. though as children, they couldn't verbally tell them. So... I do think it's really important that we actually empower parents more and we support them more because their own anxiety is about worrying about how are they going to be judged by others. You know, if my kid doesn't go to school, does that reflect badly on me as a parent? Am I being seen as not doing a good enough job? So when we get anxious, be that a child about going to school or a parent anxious about how am I perceived as a parent, we, we feel insecure about that. Mm. But we don't just keep that to ourselves, we project it onto others. So I'm going to take my insecurity about am I good enough as a teenager, as a parent, as a as an adult in work, whatever it's going to be. And I worry and I think that this person is thinking about me and thinking negatively. So I'm going to project that out of me onto them and assume that because I'm thinking it, because I feel it so strongly, they must be thinking of that about me too. So when mm. we get anxious, we make lots and lots of assumptions that make sense why we worry about them, but they don't always stand up to scrutiny. Okay. And if somebody is going through that, then... What are the three things that they should do if they are feeling anxious? So it, it probably depends more on age, how you're going to respond okay. to that. Because, yeah. you know, for a young child, it's going to be very difficult for them to self-validate and say, look, it makes sense that I'm anxious because they may not have, more than likely don't have the words to actually recognize that it is anxiety or they're nervous. So that's where you have that dynamic, that interaction between yeah. the parent and the child where the parent recognizes that, look, it looks like you're a little bit anxious, you're a bit nervous. Which then yeah. for the child, they can go, oh, that's what that feels like. Yes. So that, that vocabulary first, which again is back to mental health literacy, yes. that we start that at a very young age. Okay. And we, and we notice with children, because if we're wrong, 
then they'll say, no, well, I'm not that. Okay, well, then we get a process of clarification. Yeah. I think the second most important thing is to validate and go, that makes sense. So you have a child who's worried about a final coming up or a test coming up and to not go back on reassurance because when we're anxious, everything that we're anxious about is theoretically possible. Yes. But what happens is that it's like looking at the possibilities through a magnifying glass. We magnify our belief in how likely we think it is to happen. So no matter how unlikely it is in that moment, that person, that child, whoever it's going to be, any human is feeling their heart is pounding, they're short of breath, their stomach is in knots. And if we tell them it'll never happen, but they're in a high state of anxiety, it's like, well, you don't get me. You literally don't understand how I feel because I don't feel grand. Mm. So it's important to say, look, what you're feeling makes sense. What we also want to do is then talk about what's a justifiable response. So every time we get anxious, we can't not go to work. We can't not go to school. It's how do we survive the anxiety? How do we do it anyway? Mm. And and one of my favorite quotes in this area is by Robert Frost to say that anxiety, the best way is through. Because once we allow anxiety to run its course, it will pass. But often we don't believe that it will. And we think it'll keep rising and rising and rising and we'll feel worse and worse and worse. So we we get away from it quickly. We, We get away from the situation that's making us anxious. And we think oh, okay, relief. So the heart slows down and I don't feel as nauseous. And unfortunately, what we cognitively believe is if I didn't get out of that situation, something catastrophic would have happened. So thank God I got away from it. So we feel relief. Unfortunately, it's that sense of relief is what we end up chasing. So the next time I'm in that situation and I feel really anxious, I think, how did I feel better last time? I got out of there. Yes. And then suddenly a pattern of avoidance develops and we become reliant on avoidance as a way of coping. The most important piece when I'm working with someone or when I get parents to work with kids around it, the key phrase in managing anxiety when you know you're doing good work is when the person says, I stayed with it and it wasn't as bad as I thought. Okay. Because anxiety on a cognitive level will only make catastrophic predictions. Okay. That it's going to be the end of the world. There's going to be a car crash. My house is going to get broken into. I'm going to get fired. Whatever it's going to be. And yet, when you would say to someone, look, well, how many times have you had that belief about the bad thing happening? Hundreds. And how many times did it happen? Well, well, none. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. And, and when did the worry start? Oh, when I was about 18. Right, okay. So before 18, when you didn't worry about it, it must have happened every day. Um, well, no, it didn't. Oh. Mm. So yeah. it's about trying to challenge the kind of the assumptions that people make and, okay. and help them to stick through the feeling. Yeah, I'm sure you would have breathing exercises and all different techniques like that that would also help people work through it. It does. People find breathing exercises a little invalidating on their own. Okay. Because they are important, but it is important to address the thoughts that people have that lead to those. It's also important to address the behaviours of the avoidance and then also then physiologically how they understand what their body is doing. And when we understand it, we can manage it better. Okay, so it's a combination of all of the things. And so then the other thing that we have in this new campaign is stress. How do you differentiate stress from anxiety? And are they not, to me, I would think, well, they're interlinked because if I'm anxious, I'm going to be stressed. If I'm stressed, I'm going to be anxious. And I suppose from my own literacy point of view, I'm not clear about that. And there isn't a straightforward answer. I think I agree with you. They're really both sides of the same coin. But I think from a stigma point of view, I think there is a, a more of an acceptance of it's okay to be stressed. Yeah. But I think people are less likely to say I'm anxious about it because maybe a, a perception of, of that being slightly more more vulnerable than stress. Stress, I think, is more commonplace in our, in our language. They both have direct physiological impacts on us. Yes. They both 
consume our thoughts. They're both stresses like what happens if I mess up this interview? What happens if I mess up this exam or, or something else? Thinking and worrying about a worst case scenario. And again, we get physiologically tense. Rather than what we call it, recognizing that we're under pressure, that we're under stress, that we need to find a different way of managing the situation that we're in because our current way of managing it is resulting in us feeling this. So therefore, I need to try and do something different. Yeah. And when you do recognize the signs, I suppose, to recognize that there is help and that there Mm. are places you can go to to get help and not to be afraid of asking for help. No, what we're always trying to do, like at the heart of what I do as a psychologist is about promoting people's independence. Mm. So I think as a first point of call, it's also what can I do for myself? What options have I got that I can feel a confidence that I can manage, whether it's stress or anxiety, whatever we want to call it, in my own way? What works for me? Yeah. And if we don't have that, then sometimes it's about, well, what supports? And I think some of the best supports that we're going to have are our friends, our colleagues, a sports coach, a year ahead, someone that we have a relationship with. Because at the core of when we do maybe see professional help Mm. is the relationship. So if someone comes to see me, yes, I have the knowledge about how to manage anxiety, but unless I can build that sense of of trust and safety with the person, then it's less likely to work. Mm. So with family, with friends, we already have the relationship. Yes. And if we have someone who gets us, then again, we feel less lonely, we feel more understood and we feel more connected and that's going to reduce our stress. I have somebody that, that can literally listen to me and I think we shouldn't underestimate the power of just having someone who listens who doesn't have to have particular skills in cbt or psychological techniques to manage something yeah i had a young person once who it was one of the the proudest moments i had she was very anxious and very worried about offending all the time and would constantly say sorry Mm. and one day when she was leaving my room she said look mark i don't mean to offend but so basically your job is i come in and i unload all my stuff onto you she used a different word but we won't put a bleep in for it and i walk out just happier that i've left it all with you and yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But, you know, that's not a skill unique to psychologists. Yeah. That can be friendly in fans who literally just sit there and don't judge. They just yeah. unload and it feels safe. So having those people around us, having those connections is one of those things that we can do. But I think it takes a certain degree of strength and bravery to feel that. And one of the things that gets in the way when we talk about stress is that people worry about, I couldn't tell somebody else about my stress because... I don't want to burden them. Yes. They have a lot going on. They're busy with work. They're busy with life, busy with the kids. And if I tell them, then I've just added more stress to them. Mm. But often because of this fast pace of life, those other people could be going through the exact same stresses Mm. and they don't see the burden and they're worrying about Paul doesn't seem to be doing great. I wonder, is he all right? Yeah. It's a burden that we don't tell them. Yeah. Or they could feel a sense of connection of, yeah, look, I feel the same way too. Yeah. So I think we need to try and work on that ourselves where we don't see it as a burden, but sees an opportunity to to be connected to somebody else. And that, that listening ear in itself, I think, is one of those first steps. Yeah, not to be taken for granted, I suppose, just to listen to people. How is it that some people can cope with stresses and some people can't? And if we say that stress and anxiety is part of life, how come some people are just, they find it easier and they don't appear to get stressed. That's the key word, appear, appear to. <laughs> I would often talk about that analogy, but the duck on the surface seems very calm underneath yeah, the, the feet yeah. are flapping. <laughs> so I meet many, many people who on the surface, people think they're amazingly successful and they're very calm. And then they're coming into me and telling me about yeah, all of the worries yeah. and, and anxieties. I think we have a, a wide range of personalities. We have a wide range of experiences and we all 
have various thresholds at which or, or point at which we can cope with it, you know, moves on beyond that yeah. ability to cope. But I think it also comes down to support networks. Who do we have around us? Are, mm. are we isolated? Are we alone? Do we have people that we can turn to? And what other things are going on in our life that are impacting on us? So we know that there are certain things going to increase our vulnerability. So yeah. how do I cope with what perceives as a small little stress to somebody else? But at the same time, if there's a prospect of maybe I'm going to lose my job and I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep my house and I'm going to be able to afford bills for the kids. If we have lots of other stressors impacting on us, something that could seem quite small to someone else suddenly feels very big. Yeah, of course. But also what we don't notice, again, because we experience lots of very small stresses on a daily basis. If we don't pay attention to them, if we don't pay attention to the impact and reality of that stress, they tend to build up. And if you, people sometimes think that stress is related to one big event that I could see a direct cause of relationship. Yeah. But often there, there could be 10, 15, 20 little stresses building up every day over the course of a couple of weeks. Yeah. We don't notice them. And then suddenly one day we just go bang and we yeah. burn out and we think, oh my God, where did this come from? I didn't see it coming. But because there are lots and lots of daily stresses that we just put to one side mm. and we don't kind of think, look, what will I do about that? It can still have the same effect as one big, major, overwhelming stressor. So that's why campaign like this is trying to help us recognize those things so we don't allow it to build up and we do go for that support or we do get somebody that we can speak to to listen to before it gets too bad, I suppose. Yeah. And the other things then that we have in this campaign that we've identified as really important is sleep. And again, is sleep something that we just take for granted? You know, oh, you need X amount of hours sleep a night. And is it when people wake up during the night? What is it that really affects people's sleep or their sleep pattern? We definitely don't prioritise it enough. There is a knock-on effect between all of the things that we're talking about. Yeah. So one of the times, you talked about social anxiety earlier on. Yes. One of the times where people experience the most social anxiety is lying on their pillow at nighttime where there's no other people around. What? How is that possible? Yeah. Because you're thinking back on the day just gone and I was talking to Mary in the post office and I can't believe I said that. She must think yeah. I'm such a fool and she thinks I'm so boring. And then tomorrow now I've got to go here and how am I going to talk to this guy because I've nothing to say for myself and if I do, he's going to think I'm full of myself. So with social anxiety, we're thinking about what happened and what's going to happen. Yeah. And, and our brain is just flooded away because at nighttime lying on the pillow, we've no distractions. So our brain goes into all sorts of places that we don't really want it to go and is not conducive to sleep. So what do we do about that? How do we stop that happening? So it's not about stopping it. <laughs> you can't stop these things. You can't stop our brain and tell it not to think. And as a strategy for, again, managing anxiety or stress, thought stopping doesn't work. Because okay. if you tell someone, don't think about a particular thing, and, and the example we normally say is, don't think about a pink elephant. Don't see a mm. pink trunk, a pink legs, and a big pink eyes and pink feet. The person saying, well, they're seeing it. So I'm going to be seeing them the whole way home now. Everything will be pink. <laughs> but I think, I think we, we underestimate, in terms of managing stress, managing anxiety, we have to have energy to do that. Yeah. It takes energy to manage the daily life, stresses of life and anxiety. And one of the, the main sources of energy outside of food is our sleep. Yeah. It's literally where the body learns to regenerate so it can go again. Back to maybe times where we're, we're emphasizing productivity and it's time that I've wasted. But yet we do need time where we have to recharge. And in the world of technology, if we look at things like robot hoovers, they know when there's only 10% left, there's an inbuilt recognition. I've got to go back to my docking station so that I can recharge so I can come do it again with our iPhones. It gets the 10%. We get a notification. We look at it. We got to plug it in. So we treat technology with that recognition for, yeah. for it to work efficiently. 
it has to be charged. With electric cars, if we decided that today I'm going to drive to Cork and I look at the electric car and there's 40 miles charge left in the battery for the car, we wouldn't expect to set out on that journey and reach Cork. Yeah. We'd recognize rationally that's not going to work. I got to charge it and I got to charge it enough that it can reach that destination. We also need to do that with our bodies, with our minds. We need to give them time to recharge so that we can get up the next day and manage everyday life. It is a requirement. And sometimes we get people who talk about, I'm really struggling with irritation. I'm a bit more anxious, a bit more stressed. I'm really struggling to concentrate. Mm. And you have a conversation, look, how are you getting on with the sleep? Are Are you getting much? No, I'm probably not getting off till two in the morning. And then I get up at seven and I go on to go. Well, of course, yeah. you're, how could you concentrate? Like your your body mm. is is not given enough time to recharge. You have to give yourself permission. I yeah. think sometimes to go. You know what? I I need to go to bed now because yeah. otherwise I'm not going to be able to perform as well as I would like to. Yeah. And then we're less critical and harsh on ourselves the next day because we know that I didn't get enough sleep and how could I expect to do as well? Yeah. So if we're less critical, we tend to be less stressed. And less anxious because we can make sense of it. So it's it's both giving permission and prioritizing sleep as something that's as integral to what we do every day as it is to how we talk to people, how we function at work, how we yeah. do in school. That they're so intertwined with each other that you can't expect success in one without actually having enough in the other. So it's completely underestimated, really. Sleep is completely underestimated. One of the things I wanted to ask you about as well is, do you think worldwide are we telling the story of mental health and mental well-being better than we did or are we giving people space to be able to admit that they're having issues with their mental health how many hours have you got to answer that question i guess that's another podcast is it (laughs) it is i think i think we've got a lot better yeah we've definitely got a lot better from from decades ago where the conversation would kind of start and end with his nerves are at him yes and that covered everything. But it was such a small sentence, but so stigma provoking. Yes. That that covered so many things. So I think in terms of differentiating and knowing and being accepting that it's okay, we've got much better at it. But then at times, sometimes it's become so commonplace in language that I think it's gone too far. Yes. So that's, that's interesting that you say that because I have, as a parent, I've got four t- teenagers and they will always talk about anxiety and social anxiety and things like that. And they have no problem using that language. But then is it that everybody is labeled with something? Yeah. And and it just comes up as a, a significant source of frustration for people that I see in the mental health services yeah. where they will hear phrases in, in real life or on TikTok where, oh, you know, I'm very OCD about my bedroom. Yes. And like, that's not really helpful. To, yeah. to go that far because it, it really invalidates that how debilitating OCD is and how much it takes over someone's life to the point that they need you know professional yes. support for it. You can't be a little bit OCD. Yeah. You know, you have OCD that really significantly impairs your life or you don't have it. You just like things to be in their place and that's okay. Yeah. Or, you know, I'm really depressed because Liverpool lost at the weekend. Yeah. No, you're, as a Liverpool fan, I can empathize, you know, <laughs> sad, frustrated, annoyed. Yeah but I'm not depressed. They're not the same. So we also need that literacy of sometimes it's okay to feel sad, frustrated, angry, to have a justifiable and proportionate emotional response to something stressful, um, like being a Liverpool fan, and that's okay. (laughs) But that if we start using words like I'm depressed because Liverpool lost, it's not a proportionate or accurate response to an event. 
and that also then it's communicating to somebody else who really is quite impaired because of depression that the two experiences are the same and and it's not so I think it's underestimating their actual OCD or depression depression or or whatever it is it's saying that that our experiences are the same yes and they're not so being sad at your team losing absolutely that that's proportionate that's justifiable that's understandable but to say you're depressed because of it isn't yeah but you know if you have again back to that that maybe that sense of you know, I've, I've just lost my job i'm about to lose my house my marriage is broken down and and i'm i've been struggling with my mood my motivation i don't want to get out of bed i've no interest in eating and i'm quite irritable and that's been happening for a couple of weeks and i'm quite depressed about it that makes sense you know that's how you would expect yeah. someone to feel with all of those Absolutely. life stressors going on yeah so we have to be careful that we do talk about it yeah but in a measured and accurate way and not that it's a throwaway remark because we don't know how that could invalidate or hurt somebody Absolutely. else so it just shows with the extremes of how we use the language how the mental health literacy is so important mm. So that's really interesting, actually, and I haven't thought about it like that before, the way that people do throw out these words as a validation, which is not really for inaccurate examples. The other one in the campaign that we wanted to discuss today is about low mood. And again, I can see now from what you're saying, they are so all relatable, the anxiety, the stress, the sleep and then the low mood. Can you have one without the other? I think particularly with mood and anxiety, okay, they, they are so interrelated. Yeah. So if we get really, really anxious about maybe that social piece, about yes. going out and interacting with people, and we withdraw from life and we stay in our room, we don't go out as much, we've less opportunities to do enjoyable things. We've less opportunities to connect with people. So therefore, if we have less of those enjoyable opportunities, we feel a little bit lower. We feel disconnected. We feel lonely. If we're feeling, you know, really quite low in our mood and not motivated to go out and do something, then we lose confidence. And if we want to try and do it again, understandably, then we feel anxious about doing it because we've lost confidence. Yes. So they're, they're going to impact on each other. Yeah. And I think we don't want to get too caught up in labels at times because they are also connected. And what's going to work for maybe mood is also going to work for anxiety. Yeah. So we know for mood, we want people to get behaviorally activated. And basically what that means is getting out, doing stuff, finding something that they enjoy and putting it in and following through on it. So for someone who's anxious, they will withdraw, they will get anxious with doing something. So we need to support them to follow through on it, which again is behavioral activation. And I think what's important maybe when, when we've got low mood is that sometimes people will think, okay, well, when I'm motivated and when I don't feel low in my mood, then I will do it. Mm. But it doesn't really work that way. Because we don't find motivation. We don't kind of wake up one morning and decide, right, I flicked the switch and now I'm motivated. So I think what's important is that sometimes we recognize what we need to do rather than what we want to or feel up to doing. And yeah. what happens is after we start doing it, the motivation comes back because we feel like, oh, yeah, look, I did that. Yeah. And that was, yeah. you know, I felt a little bit better. Not, not amazing, not bouncing off the walls with happiness, but a little yeah. bit better. Maybe I'd like to do that again. And there are a lot of supports available for people. Hmm. on yourmentalhealth.ie and there's such a range of different supports and we've got online cognitive behavioural therapy. What is that? So CBT is 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 looking at our thoughts and our behaviours and how the interaction between both of those impact on how we feel. 
Okay. So what we want to be able to do with someone, either for them to be educated themselves through a self-guided CBT program, is to identify maybe where they might have particular thinking styles that might hold them back from doing something. So maybe in that case of anxiety, where they think catastrophically. Yes. That it's going to be the worst case scenario, or they think in a black and white way that it's either it's fantastic or it's the worst. So how those kind of thinking styles can impact on how they might interact with the world or see other people. And then looking at kind of behavioral patterns where maybe yeah. avoidance is something that's maintaining their anxiety or their low mood and, and identifying ways to, to challenge that or do something different. So for lots of people, some of those guided self-help programs or self-help books just give them that information and they go off and they do it and, and yeah. they can make those changes. Then at a different level through some of the HC offerings, like with Silver Cloud, there are kind of supporters built into it that will check in and maybe give some clarifications, a little bit of guidance that allows that little bit of support. Yeah. And for a lot of people, that is enough. And mm. there have been a lot of people supported by that over the, the last couple of years in particular, especially with COVID. We saw a big increase in people accessing guided self-help through CBT because we weren't allowed to meet with each other. Yes. So out of necessity, we had to develop more of those offerings and people got used to it yeah. more. Then for a smaller amount of people, again, coming back to that piece about the relationship, they will learn those those coping mechanisms through CBT through that relationship that they would have with with maybe a psychologist or a counsellor and help them to kind of to tease it out a little bit and to guide it. So I think the important part with that is that early intervention is always key yeah. about getting that help early, be that through that self-help and guided CBT or through early intervention. So yeah. we know for, for things when they're in a mild range, by mild, what we mean is that they're not impacting us really every single day or, or dominating our lives. Mm. In those kind of scenarios, usually a couple of sessions, kind of six yeah. to eight, usually will really help someone. What we also know is that group-based CBT is really effective. Very good. Um, and in particular for social anxiety. Mm. Um, but it's also exceptionally difficult for social anxiety to be in a group yes. because you worry what people think of you and you're being asked to come into a group where there's lots of people. Yeah, I didn't actually even know there was. There is. So, yeah, CBT. so one of the we know one of my, my, my colleagues and friends for many years has developed the Social Anxiety Ireland program that has been running for probably 20 years, has fantastic research behind it and has now emerged into adolescence as well. But even though someone was, is anxious about you know getting help for social anxiety, it's also one of the safest places you could ever be because everybody else there is so worried about what they yeah. think of them. Nobody has time to be thinking about you too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I think in any group-based intervention, be that for social anxiety or no mood or wherever it's going to be, one of the principal benefits is that you're sitting in a room looking around at all these people who look just like you. And they're talking about experiences that you can relate to, that you know somebody actually gets how you feel because they're feeling it. They're feeling the same. And that's where yeah. a lot of the, the strengths come from, from group-based interventions, is just seeing I'm not alone. Obviously, Mark, you can speak to your GP as well if you need some support. And we have a lot of online supports on yourmentalhealth.ie. But what in the first instance, what would you say to people who are just feeling that they're having difficulty with the things that we've touched on today, it's stress, anxiety? low mood and sleep, what would you say would be the first steps for them? I think the, the first steps is talk to a friend, talk to a family member, talk to someone you trust. That's always going to be that first step. And sometimes that'll be enough. Um, I think it's important in that kind of step not to expect that that person will have all the answers. And I think as friends and family and colleague, if we're in that in that situation, that we would also be brave and say, oh, yeah, I, I can see what you're going through. But you know what? I think you might benefit from talking to someone that we can be brave enough to support our friends and colleagues to take that step of reaching out. 
And sometimes your, your mental health today might be that place that has the literacy, but also the links to online videos on YouTube, to stress control programs that allows us that independence to manage ourselves. But also then it's okay to say, well, look, that didn't work for me for whatever reason. Yeah. And, and that's okay. I think that's really important with help seeking. That if we if we access one sort of help, be that talking to a friend or online CBT or psychoeducation, and it's not effective for us, it doesn't mean we stop. It doesn't mean we failed. It means that we just need to try something else. And I think the GP is going to be central to that, especially if things go on longer and they have more of an impact in our life. Your GP in any area is going to know what's around. They're going to know you. They'll have that relationship. They'll know what might best meet your needs. But also if that support doesn't, your GP might know what else we'll need or where else I could go. So they're going to be central to most of our care and they play such a really important role in all of health, but especially mental health as well. Yeah, that's great, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you very much for listening to our HSE Talk in Health and Wellbeing podcast.